Welcome, funky listeners, to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter. We're here with, uh, I guess, part two of our Who Killed Tupac and Biggie funk murder extravaganza. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be interesting going through uh, this episode because, as we alluded to last time, uh, doing the research for this topic is really intensive. Mm-hmm. And my brain is kind of dead <laughs> from oh, I don't, I, putting I this don't one know. together. So I think we've done more research on this episode than all past episodes combined. That literally might be true. <laughs> 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 oh God, uh, it's good though. I I think this is really interesting, and I'm really glad that we've been doing this topic. Yeah, no, it's. I honestly didn't know until doing research that there were so many competing theories and evidence and people surrounding the murders of Tupac and Biggie. You know, as a kid, you know, you're just like, oh yeah, you know, Tupac and Biggie, they got both died. They didn't like each other. So it was kind of just assumed, you know, Mm. some of their entourage or whatever probably had a hand in it. But once you really like dive into the details, it becomes a lot more complicated than that but at the same time really not much more complicated than that it's hard to explain yeah and i think that's a good segue into kind of how we introduced the last episode which was basically the story of these murders is extremely complicated (laughs) even for all the stuff that we're going to go through there's a lot that we're leaving out too we're really trying to cover the most essential things that Mm -hmm. we can um I don't want to spend too much time here recapping the last episode. Um, I think if you're interested in this topic and you haven't listened to the previous one, this seems like a weird spot to start because really we ended the last episode after going through the events leading up to the murders. Then we went to the, into the murders in detail and then we ended after that. And I guess we haven't said this, uh, this episode is going to be more about everything after the murders, um, which is, Mostly, you know, it's the the investigations into them, but also just other events that happen that are significant for the whole timeline. So uh, similar to the last episode, we will be walking through a big timeline and more or less kind of picking up where we left off last time. So um, as we said last time, uh, you know, in a good amount of detail, on September 13th, 1996, uh, that night in Las Vegas is when, um, oh no, excuse me. Uh, that was the evening of the 7th that Tupac got shot in Las Vegas. Um, and then we said for the next six days um, through September 13th, he was in the hospital and eventually on the 13th, uh, he died. A few weeks later, on October 2nd, um, police raided 37 homes in the Compton area and surrounding areas in L.A., Basically, what happened is after Tupac was shot, there was a lot of retaliation shootings and gang activity that really flared up right after his death, because obviously people were pissed off. Mm-hmm. And it was as we said, you know, there was very close ties to the Crips and the Bloods. So in these weeks following his death, you know, there's a spike of uh, gang shootings and everything. So the police do this raid on October 2nd. And they arrest a total of 22 gang members tied to various crimes and shootings. Um, among these is 
Orlando Anderson. And if that name sounds familiar, listeners, he's the one at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas who Tupac had beat up shortly. You know, it was after the Mike Tyson fight. This is also the guy who took that necklace from the. Uh, it was one of the Bloods, right? Yeah, one of the one of the Bloods at the Lakewood Mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, that was when um, Puffy said, "You know, I'll give." I forgot. He said, "Like I'll give five thousand dollars to anyone that can yeah, steal yeah. one of the death row necklaces." Yeah. So Orlando Anderson is he had done that? Then Tupac had beat him up um, that night. Now he's one of the people who's arrested in this whole thing. So two Las Vegas detectives actually interview him in his home and they tell him that they're interested in talking to him after they saw him on the security camera tape at the MGM Grand. So they interview him, they question him, whatever. The next day on October 3rd, Las Vegas Police Lieutenant Larry Spinoza tells the press that, quote, at this point, Orlando Anderson is not a suspect in the shooting of Tupac Shakur. Likewise, in this whole, because um, I guess Anderson had lawyered up pretty quickly at this point. And his lawyer said, quote, at the time he was being attacked, he did not know his attacker, his attacker was Mr. Shakur. He believes he is a victim of Tupac. Um, and then he goes on to state that he didn't know what ignited the confrontation between them. And the Anderson quote has nothing to do whatsoever with Tupac shooting. And of course we know what, what ignited that confrontation. As we said, it was that whole necklace thing. Uh, so several months later, um, in March of 1997, um, specifically March 9th, um, as we mentioned in the last episode, this is the early morning hours when um, Biggie dies in La- in uh, Los Angeles after being shot after that big party at the, um, what is it, the Peterson Automotive mm-hmm. Museum. Um, you know, obviously at this point, the Tupac investigation is underway now biggie dies everybody knows that they have this whole beef going between them and now everyone's like oh shit (laughs) now both of them are dead and it takes no time at all for people not only the investigators but also the press to be like oh okay well clearly these two are linked so about nine days later on march 18th biggie's funeral procession takes place in brooklyn which was where he was from this whole thing is attended by thousands of fans. I actually read an article that, you know, at the time from someone who was there and just describing this whole event that took place that day. And it was kind of interesting to read that. So in, in addition to all these thousands of people, um, his funeral is attended by dozens of rappers and celebrities, um, not surprisingly. Um, and Puffy Combs, who we said was the, the head of um, Bad Boy Records in New York and, you know, a good friend of... of uh, Biggie Smalls. He gave the eulogy. Didn't his wife, uh, what was his wife at the time, Faith Evans, sing too? Yes, she did. Sweet. Right. Yeah. Um, interestingly, also on March 18th, so that uh, so his funeral is taking place in Brooklyn, across the U.S. in Los Angeles on the same day. There's a road rage incident that takes place between these two guys named Frank Liga and uh, Kevin Gaines, and so. Amidst this whole road rage incident that occurs between them, um, Gaines is flashing gang signs. He's shouting threats and uh, and he's waving his handgun at him. And so in self-defense, because this is, you know, this is pretty scary stuff. In Mm self-defense, Liga shoots and kills Gaines. Um, Now, the interesting thing about these two guys, they were both undercover cops working for different units. And obviously they didn't recognize each other. 
that's sad. <laughs> and so obviously the LAPD investigates this whole thing. And in that investigation, they find out that um, Kevin Gaines, the guy who was shot and killed, who was being crazy, he was actually he had a he had ties with Death Row Records and Suge Knight, who we discussed last time was he was the whole ringleader of the West Coast, you know, uh, Tupac. That was his whole thing. And they realize, okay, this undercover cop has ties with all these guys, and Death Row, consequently, was hiring off-duty LAPD officers to serve as security guards. And he was not the only one. There were many others. And so the reason we bring up this whole incident is because basically this is the first in a string of investigations that become known as the Rampart Scandal. And we're not going to necessarily go into that in depth, but basically there's this widespread case um, implicating dozens of LAPD officers of corruption and misconduct and uh, gang ties and ties with like death records and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it becomes clear that, you know, not only is all these, all this gang activity going on, but the LAPD has more of a hand in (laughs) all of this gang activity than they might've realized initially. But obviously this had a pretty big, you know, impact on the LAPD itself, but also just like how the public viewed them as well. Mm-hmm. And not not that they had a perfect image at this point anyway, um, but this certainly didn't help. Um, about six months later in September, uh, a year after Tupac's death, Homicide Sergeant Kevin Manning, who was heading the investigation of Tupac's murder, he told the Las Vegas Sun, quote, we're at a standstill. Uh, I guess despite his detectives receiving information constantly about the murder, basically the problem that they explain in this article is that, like, so many people are giving them false information um, or at least information that's unhelpful. Mm -hmm. So they're a year into the investigation and they're like, they're basically nowhere. Mm -hmm. And the the article says, quote, police say the case slowed early in the investigation as few new clues came in and witnesses clammed up. The murder weapon has not been found and no one has fingered a suspect. And you'll see that that's a recurring theme in this whole investigation is that nobody wants to cooperate because there's so much, you know, like gang ties. Yeah. You know, no one's going to work with the cops on this. Exactly. It's the, it's the gang ties of, you know, don't snitch. It's the fact that the police's uh, rapport with the public is probably at an all time low at that point. Yeah, so. exactly. So needless to say, you know, there, you know, it's been a year now and they don't know anything, but I mean, I'm sure they have some leads, but they, you know, they really don't have much of anything. Mm-hmm. A couple months later, on November 6, 1997, $722,000 is stolen from an armed or in an armed robbery of an L.A. branch of Bank of America. So, you know, obviously the LAPD is investigating this. Um, and about a month later, an assistant bank manager from that bank confesses to being involved in this crime. And she implicates her boyfriend, um, LAPD officer David Mack, as kind of the mastermind behind the whole thing. As a result of this, David Mack is sentenced to 14 years in prison. And so if you remember not too long ago, we were talking about this whole Rampart scandal with cops who are basically corrupt and Mm -hmm. committing all these crimes. This becomes another big piece of that whole thing. And David Mack's name will come back in a minute. I guess that's why we're bringing this part up. So, you know, as we're getting into the investigation of these murders, we have the the case being 
led by um, this guy, this LAPD detective named Russell Poole. And you're going to hear his name a lot in this episode. He wasn't the first person to initially start investigating these, but he's, you know, one of the big names in the whole timeline of, of investigation of this. Mm-hmm. During during the time of, of Russell Poole's investigation, um, and amidst all this other, you know, the Rampart scandal and all this stuff, um, a jail informant tells him that a, um, a corrupt officer told the informant that the bank money um, from that uh, bank robbery was intended to go to David Mack's friend, Amir Muhammad, for carrying out the murder of Biggie Smalls. This informant claims that both of those officers, the one he had been talking to directly, but also David Mack, both of, he claims that both of them were involved in Biggie's murder. And then this other guy, Amir Muhammad, was the actual shooter. And Russell Poole is like, oh my gosh, you know, this is breakthrough information. Mm-hmm. That not only do we know who you know who shot Biggie Smalls, but we also know that there was um, LAPD cops involved in this whole thing. So he Russell Poole really starts using this as the basis for his investigation and his findings. So as he investigates this all further, it takes a while, you know, to collect all this information. But eventually, he gets to a point where he says he has enough evidence to prove that David Mack has direct ties to Suge Knight. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that someone who's really close to Suge Knight and the Bloods could turn around and kill Biggie Smalls, who's like on the opposite team, basically. Mm-hmm. So in, in addition to, you know, this whole thing of implicating David Mack, uh, Russell Poole also says, hey, um, Suge Knight also has a big part in uh, Tupac's murder, in addition to Biggie's murder. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily suspect that because, as we discussed in the last episode, Suge Knight and Tupac were like peas in a pod. I mean, they were like the two big names mm-hmm. in the whole West Coast scene and the and the Bloods and all that. So why would Suge Knight turn around and kill Tupac? Now, there was a rumor going around that Tupac was actually going to leave Death Row Records and, you know, get out of the whole scene. And Suge Knight didn't like that. So the the theory here on Russell Poole's part is that um, Suge Knight killed, or had Tupac killed, rather, and in, as part of this whole scheme, Suge Knight pinned the murder on Orlando Anderson. So Russell Poole's like, okay, I have all this great information, I have all these findings, and he presents the, all of this to the chief of the LAPD, Bernard Parks, saying, okay, I think I have what we need for, you know, these Tupac and Biggie murders. Uh, in response to this, Bernard Parks, you know, the, the chief of police says, you need to stop. You cannot be investigating Officer David Mack any longer. Mm. And that's the final word. So Russell Poole's like, well, okay, obviously this is a cover-up. So he retires from the department in late 1999. And... He later recounted, quote, criminal cops got protected because the department wants to avoid scandal and publicity. Now, before I had read that, I had actually already been theorizing myself of the reason why, you know, they told him to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. My thought was not necessarily that they're covering up or that they're all in on it. But, you know, with this whole Rampart scandal going on, you know, everybody hates the LAPD. It's clear publicly that, like, there's all this corruption going on. Mm hmm. And so for Russell Poole to come and say, okay, 
cops not only you know are corrupt and you know for this all this other stuff, but they were also directly tied to the murders of Tupac and Biggie. And so my my thought was like they were probably just like we can't have any more of this. Just shut up and we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And that you know it turns out that, was, that that was actually his take on it as well. Yeah, I mean I'm sure it was a cover up in the sense that you know they already had so much bad publicity as you were saying that mm-hmm. basically they're like there was so, there was some stuff that just got so big that they couldn't cover it up and then maybe they thought well we can at least cover this up yeah exactly so i think that's kind of where that was left and like i said he he retired from the from the force in late 1999 mm-hmm. in terms of russell Poole, however um that was really not the end for him at all because basically at that point after he leaves the force he becomes a private investigator and he continues digging into this case. And in addition to digging into the case, he also starts being very public with this information about um, his findings. Mm-hmm. We'll, uh, we'll get in, we'll, into a little bit more of that in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so just put that aside for, for now, listeners. So going back from 1999, you know, the previous year of 1998, on May 29th of 1998, um, Orlando Anderson was actually shot and killed um, during a gang-related shootout in Compton. And I was reading a, a contemporary article, I think from just like a couple days later, from MTV News that said, quote, with Anderson's death, the hopes of ever finding Shakur's killer or uncovering the circumstances surrounding his death now seem all but dashed. And I found that quote kind of interesting because obviously we had just been talking a minute ago about, you know, Russell Poole's whole thing. But, you know, that was not public information at this point. From a public perspective, Anderson was the only one who people like really even knew, like a name connected with Tupac's murder. Mm-hmm. You know, officially he wasn't a suspect, but not you know, but now he's killed in another gang-related incident, and so that's why this article is basically like, well, you know, we don't even know if we're ever going to know now. So at this point, two years pass. There's not really a whole lot um, that happens in this time because, like I said, the investigation formally has kind of stopped in its tracks since Russell Poole retired. Mm-hmm. At least from what I can tell, there was not really much that developed in that time between 1998 and 2000. On May 3rd of 2000, um, a guy named Chuck Phillips, who was a staff writer for the LA Times, he publishes an article that actually clears the name of Amir Muhammad. Now, to go backwards a little bit, Amir Muhammad, remember David Mack, he was the guy who did the bank robbery. And um, that informant had said David Mack worked with his friend Amir Muhammad to kill Biggie Smalls. And he said Amir Muhammad was the guy who shot and killed Biggie Smalls. Mm -hmm. Now in this report in 2000, Chuck Phillips writes this whole article that basically clears Amir Muhammad. Because um, I guess he was curious, Chuck Phillips was this writer, he... um, was able to track down this guy literally in a couple of days without any problem. In fact, Amir Muhammad, part of the way that Phillips had found him was that he had an ad for his brokerage business in his own newspaper. So he finds him and, you know, that he realizes this guy, he, um, he's even quoted as saying, I'm a mortgage broker, not a murderer. How can something so completely false end up on the front page of a major newspaper? And so this, this article in 2000 in the LA times is really breaks that piece of that whole theory wide open. Mm-hmm. Cause this guy who people were, cause you know, officially Amir Muhammad was not a suspect of the murder, but there was this 
theory that had been going around from Russell Poole that said, well, he he's your guy. I was going to say, even though Russell Poole, you know, was now a private person, you said he was being public with all this information now. So he's probably yeah. the one putting his name out there. Yeah. And really at this time where all of the theories and even some of the investigative work as we're seeing here is coming from is from all of these publications and newspapers and the media really, because everyone still doesn't know like what the heck happened mm-hmm. and the investigation in itself and on official, you know, basis isn't really finding much. So that you're getting cases like, and there's a, there was actually a lot more that happened on the media front. That was fairly interesting. And this whole thing, we're not really going to cover that. I think this is about as much as we're going to cover of that whole piece of it. But that's kind of an interesting timeline of the story itself, which, um, you know, so that's pretty cool. Anyway, so Phillips basically finds this guy who a lot of people at this point understand killed Biggie Smalls. He finds him easily and he realizes this guy has no gang ties. W- what the heck is going on with this? Yeah. Well, we'll leave that for now. But basically, at this point in, in 2000, this happens. So um, at this point, um, just about two years later, on April 2nd, 2002, um, a book comes out called Labyrinth. Um, this book, Labyrinth, is written by journalist Randall Sullivan in close collaboration with Russell Poole. This is really where all of his findings and stuff is really compiled into one single place. Mm-hmm. And... So basically, you know, you can go buy his book if you want, listeners, if you want to get a really full understanding of his theories about this thing, whole thing about like how Suge Knight was behind both murders, how the crooked LAPD cops were behind the murders and all, you know, how all these things kind of intertwine. And really, once this book comes out, you know, as far as the public is concerned, this kind of becomes the de facto answer to all the questions about these murders. Mm hmm. Largely, I will say I there were people, I think even before this, but especially after the book came out, that were kind of poking holes in some of his theories. A lot of the things he was saying wasn't really backed up by anything or, you know, not officially corroborated with other evidence. So despite Russell Poole being the probably the at this point, the person who has investigated this more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And the fact that a lot of people accept this as truth, it's not perfect. At this point, we already know that about the Amir Muhammad thing, because he gets cleared, more or less. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's kind of a lot of holes in his investigation at this point. Interestingly, only five days after this book comes out. Now, you know, granted, some of his stuff was already public at this point, but the book comes out on April 2nd. On April 9th of 2002, Valletta Wallace, who is the mother of Biggie Smalls, and other members of Biggie's family all together file a wrongful death suit against the LAPD in the city of Los Angeles. And this becomes a pretty big deal in this whole story. And they, you know, they basically, they claim that for one, they say last, the city of Los Angeles should have known that all of this really dangerous gang activity was going on and they should have been doing things about it rather than just letting it happen. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, the LAPD should have known that its officers were allegedly working with members of Death Row Records and the Bloods, as you know had been had come out by this point. It also stated um, that the LAPD had stopped the investigation into Biggie's death because I th- remember at this point, like basically, they weren't investigating. So this, you know, Biggie's family is uh, like, hey, they could have prevented it, they didn't. They were involved in it, 
and then they stopped investigating it once they realized that they were involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of big accusations against the LAPD, which at this point really don't seem unfounded, given everything that we know at this point. And, and you know, with this big suit that they file against the city, the they estimate that the financial losses as a result of this could be as much as $500 million. So really, from the LAPD's perspective, they're like, fuck. <laughs> Everything is stacked against them. Now they have this potential suit of $500 million against them. It, it really cannot get much worse for them. But before we go any further, Kyle, I'm, should we take a, take a little bit of a, bit of a breather? Sure. This shit is really dense, and I apologize to our listeners for how dense this is. I, I was quite entertained last time by our, our commercial break, particularly the, uh, what was it, the Pop-Tarts and then the Slinky. Yes. So what would you like to play for our commercials this time uh, <laughs> for companies that are not paying us? I was going to say, I was trying to think of like a 90s thing that's hopefully out of business so they can't sue us. Do, Ooh, we could do the st- Wonder Ball. I was going to say, do they still make Wonder Balls? Well, we talked and, about that in... Wonder Balls That wasn't the or- same episode, was it? I don't, it might have been actually. We could That's do Wonder Balls. We could do uh, Creepy Crawlers. Remember those things where like you made like the gelatin, <laughs> gelatin bugs that you could eat. I forgot about that. Well, so you know, I I suspect this won't be our first commercial break in this episode. True. So why don't we go ahead and play uh, the Nestle Wonder Ball and Creepy Crawlers? Nestle Wonder Ball. Wonder Wonder. What's in my Wonder Ball? Who knows what surprises? Lots of candy surprises, plus a sticker. Nestle Wonder Ball. It's candy and chocolate and foil in a box. What's in your Wonder Creepy crawlers. They're squirmy and wormy and purple and green. The grossest little creatures that you've ever seen. Creepy crawlers. Fill the monster mold with the colored plastic poop and make a creepy crawler from my yucky monster soup. They're yucky, yucky, squirmy, wormy, very scary, sometimes hairy, squiggly, wiggly, creepy crawling. Creepy crawlers. Gross out your sister. Embarrass your dad. You can be a little creepy. Creepy crawlers workshop from Canada Games. Light bulb not included. Parents put molding oven together. So, um, the, this next point, um, I wrote the date as June 3rd, 2005. So this is a, this is a couple years later at this point. Mm-hmm. The, so remember when we, you know, going back a little bit to Russell Poole and his whole investigation and he said there was this informant that had told him, you know, about, um, David Mack and Amir Muhammad and all this. Um, so this informant, uh, was this guy named Michael Robinson, also known as Psycho Mike. So in uh, around in around June or so in 2005, he admits under oath in a civil lawsuit that the information that he had ge- given was quote all hearsay, um, including you know everything he had said in, in terms of like identifying the gunman as Mu- Amir Muhammad. He said that was fraudulent, which matches up to what we had already known at this point for a few years, which is that he had nothing, no ties at all with this. This was just some random guy. And so now the informant who had named him in the first place basically said it was hearsay. He, he he admitted that he had gotten his information from other jail inmates, which we all know, listeners, is a, a true source of information. Mm-hmm. So instead of being, you know, this reliable source of good information, it turns out that he basically 
it was a game of telephone from other inmates. And he also describes himself as a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> so basically, this guy, Psycho Mike, everything that he had provided to the Russell Poole school of thought in terms of these home murders, that all falls apart very fast. And like we had said earlier, there were already people poking holes in those theories, you know, when the book Labyrinth came out and all that. Mm-hmm. And now their main informant now is coming out and saying, that was all fake and I'm a schizophrenic. <laughs> so <laughs> this is not, so this, that's not good news um, for that whole thing. For pool, yeah. Exactly. Around the same time, actually, I think only a couple weeks later. So remember, we had talked about the whole Wallace family and their wrongful death case. Mm-hmm. That trial finally now begins, um, and this is about three years later, after they initially filed that suit. And so, over the next few weeks, as you know, as this trial gets going, you know, they start investigating. They start finding some interesting stuff. And remember, the, that whole case was about how the LAPD was basically responsible in one way or another for Biggie's death. Mm-hmm. During this trial. Um, it's discovered that the LAPD was actually withholding evidence about David Mack and the other corrupt LAPD officers who had themselves claimed that they were involved in death row records and Biggie's murder. Mm. So the LAPD had covered this up, basically, and it was discovered at this point. And so it had been published even at this point that the judge was like considering, you know, declaring it a mistrial. The next day on July 6th, the judge does declare it a mistrial. And basically says that, like, because the LABD had been intentionally withholding evidence, you know, obviously we have to start over. So the Wallace family is actually awarded its attorney's fees. And now they're at a point, you know, well, now, basically, it had taken them three years to start this trial. So now they have to set a new date for the trial. Fun. This poor family. So now, at this point, now they're waiting again, basically. And they'll come up again, surely enough. But, um... Now, if you remember what I said earlier, that w- along with this whole suit, the LAP does not look good whatsoever. You know, it's clear at this point that they have ties, you know, if not directly with the murders themselves, then at least with the gangs that are responsible for the murders. And as I said, there was this whole $500 million lawsuit on their heads. And so at this point, the LAPD is like, okay. We need to figure out what the fuck happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, in July 30th, so the, the, about a year later, July 31st, 2006, um, at least this is when it's um, publicized. The LAPD announces that it, it has assembled a task force of six veteran homicide detectives to look deeper into these cold case murders. Because they were, this, so, you know, clearly they have a lot of motivation at this point. Hopefully clearing, not if not clearing the name of the LAPD, at least figuring out what's the truth. Because mm. at this point, there's been a lot of conflicting um, information. Now, at this point, timeline-wise, we don't really have a lot of specific dates. Because this is really where that new task force, their investigation starts to find a lot of really interesting stuff. But obviously... We, you know, the public doesn't learn about this information until years later. So the in our in our timeline, we're calling this 2008 to 2010 because we don't really know when mm-hmm. some of this stuff exactly took place. And that task force was headed by an LAPD uh, detective named Greg Kading. 
Um, his name's going to come up a lot, so that's his name. We had mentioned him in the last episode, too. Listeners might rem- remember his name. Well, we had mentioned him as being kind of the lead of this task force, mm-hmm. but also as um, the guy who ended up writing about a lot of this in later years after this whole thing and being a prominent figure in the documentary that helped, um, you know, helped us put it together, some of this information. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So a lot of a lot of what spurned this episode for us was obviously we uh, found this documentary called uh, Murder Rap, which was a documentary based on a book that Kading had wrote of the same name. Uh, that book laying out basically all of the evidence of their findings, which we're going to go into right now. Uh, not unlike how Labyrinth laid out the findings of um, Mr. Poole. So yeah, a lot of the information that's gleaned uh, from uh, Kading's investigation happens between 2008 and 2010. Uh, we don't really have super hard dates on this, but I'm just going to kind of go in chronological order of their discoveries. Basically, when they first started investigating this, they started to find that a lot of people that they were hoping to um, interview uh, regarding the murders and people that they think were linked to these murders either were wound wound up dead uh, in the span of time between the uh, murder of Tupac and Biggie and this investigation that's now literally, what, 11 years later, or they basically were just completely uncooperative with the police. So they ran into a lot of dead ends initially. Luckily for them, um, one person on their list who, you know, they were going through all these names, you know, trying to figure out who they could actually talk to. There was this um, fairly prominent figure among the Crips named Keefe D. And he really ended up being an essential part of these new, the new findings of this task force. So interestingly, Keefe D is actually the uncle uh, of Orlando Anderson. And so they they rolled together. They know each other very well um, in this whole thing. Uh, the FBI had actually interviewed Keefe D in, back in 1998 during some of the initial investigations, um, but they later dismissed him as being involved in any of this. Um, but at this point, I think the task force, like they're trying to go for anybody they can in terms of getting information. So um, they, uh, they circle back around to Keefe D. Yeah, it's, they basically had a list of suspects, and he was basically at the bottom of their list because they assumed that based on the, evi- the uh, testimony that he gave the FBI prior, they weren't really going to glean any, any new information out of him. But in a way to try to pressure him uh, into testifying in this new investigation, th- they ended up setting up a sting operation that caught him uh, dealing drugs. And they used that to get him to agree to a plea bargain to cooperate with their investigation. So Keefe D ends up giving them way more than they expected. So <laughs> during interviews with um, Greg Kading, Keefe D, he admitted basically to rolling with Puffy, offering to give him protection, all this, all this stuff linking Puffy with Keefe D and therefore with the Crips. And... Kading got Keefe D to basically admit that uh, Puffy offered him a uh, million dollars to kill Tupac and Suge Knight. The day before the Mike Tyson fight in Vegas, Keefe D and his crew of his crew crew 
uh, <laughs> head out to Las Vegas. Uh, the next day, Orlando Anderson and his friends come out to Vegas to join them, uh, and they're driving in a white Cadillac. Um, Does that af- sound familiar, listeners? Maybe. Uh, after Orlando Anderson is beat up by Tupac at the MGM Grand, KVD and uh, Orlando immediately start planning a retaliation. So, well, they initially were basically like, you know, we're, we're here in Vegas to just enjoy the, the Mike Tyson fight. Uh, it, they, they kind of thought, you know, this is now a good opportunity to, to make good on Puffy's request. Yeah, I thought that part was interesting is that like, you know, he basically, uh, KVD, you know, he, he was now tasked with killing uh, Suge and Tupac. Mm-hmm. And even though they were going out to this, you know, out to Vegas, knowing that they were both there, they didn't really have the plan of carrying this out. They were just like, oh, let's go have fun. Um, he had even said, like, you know, we had all been going to the fight since the 80s. So exactly. That was just something that they like to do. But now they realize that not only are Tupac and Shug here, but they just speed up on my uh, my nephew mm-hmm. amidst this whole, you know gang rivalry thing so gang war yeah exactly so so yeah basically they were like you know okay they're here we're here let's do this shit so everybody at that point basically knew that Shug and Tupac were going to the 662 club that night so KVD Orlando and a couple other crips got into the white Cadillac that they had driven driven to Vegas in and started looking for them they spotted them when they heard the girls calling out, Shug, Tupac, the uh, the two girls who, in, in our previous episode, we mentioned that when uh, Shug and Tupac were pulled over by the police for, I think he was like playing his music too loud or something. Yeah. Uh, the two girls spotted them on the sidewalk and were like, oh shit, it's Tupac and Shug. And they invited, yeah. uh, they invited them to come to the club with them. It's so funny, like, when you're first pre- presented with the information that, like, oh, they met them and then they went to the club with them. It seems like such an inconsequential inqu- thing. Mm-hmm. And then you get to this point with KVD's testimony where he literally says, if they hadn't called out their names, we would not have found them. We would not have killed them that night. I don't remember his exact words, but it was something like that. So basically, like, it was- that was literally how they ended up finding them was from these girls, which is crazy. It's basically their fault. <laughs> It's not. Terrible. When Tupac and Suge pulled up to the red light uh, on East Flamingo Road, adjacent to um, Las Vegas Boulevard, uh, or no, yeah, in Coval Lane, whatever that. Is. Okay. Uh, when they pulled, well, they, up the- they were they had they had initially been on um, Las Vegas Boulevard, then they had pulled off onto East Flamingo Road, and then they reached the red light at Coval Lane. Gotcha. And okay. that's that's where the whole shooting took place. Gotcha. Okay. So the crips pull up alongside in the right lane, as we described in the prior episode. Keefy D had been prepared to shoot them, but since he was in the front passenger seat, he wouldn't really be able to do it because he kind of wasn't on the proper side, basically. Well, he, and he didn't want to reach over, over in front yeah. of the driver and shoot like that way. That would be yeah. Terrible. So instead, um, his nephew, Orlando, who was in the rear right seat, uh, grabs the gun from him, leans over the, the guy to his left in the left passenger seat, and shoots Tupac. Yeah. 
I, I think the way that this all unfolds is just super interesting. And, you know, after all this time, you realize, oh, my God, like, it actually was Orlando Anderson mm-hmm. that shot Tupac. Which is so funny because, like you said earlier in the episode, when uh, news broke that he died, the public sentiment, because he was really the only person at that point publicly named, public sentiment was already, like, you know, kind of on the side of, like, did he do it? Or, he, you know, since he was the only person that was whose name was swirling around at the time. Yeah. So it turns out that maybe, at least according to this investigation, he did. Yeah. Well, and it, it's funny, too, because um, in his whole confession, KVD said, because he had he was sitting in the passenger seat because he was expecting for Tupac's car to be on the on the right side. Mm-hmm. And so he had even said I, he was prepared to shoot and he would have done it. But because of how they ended up being on the other side, he ended up not being the one to do it. Um, but obviously that didn't stop Orlando. So, mm. so you know, with the assumption that KVD's whole thing is truthful, we kind of have now a clearer story of what happened that night. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was basically like, you know, not only did Puffy already have, you know, the hit out basically for Tupac, but then it also more or less was directly related to that whole fight in the casino. He beat Tupac beat up on this guy without realizing that his that guy's uncle had a hit out on on him. Yeah, which is all kind of ironic. Yeah, exactly. Bef- before we go into the next part, Kyle, should we mm-hmm. um, take another commercial break? Yes. Living room, bedrooms, dinettes. Oh yeah, you can find them at the market. We talking about flea market, Montgomery. It's just like, it's just like a mini mall. Oh yeah, come shop with us. I said flea market, Montgomery. It's just like, it's just like a mini mall. Hey hey, you heard me. Come shop, living rooms, bedrooms, dinettes. We got it. You need it. You find it. It's just like, it's just like. Hey, hey, living rooms, bedrooms, dinettes, oh yeah, you can find them at the market, we talking about flea market, Montgomery, it's just like, it's just like a mini mall, hey, hey, don't stop, let's make it a dance, come on now, to the left, to the right, let's do this dance, hey, to the left, to the right, let's make this a dance, it's just like, it's just like a all right we're back listeners um that was fun yes hopefully it's not too distracting for us to have that completely irrelevant stuff in the middle i was gonna I'm say sure this is hard enough to follow most of our episodes have us saying irrelevant stuff, so by having the irrelevant stuff pre-canned, it keeps mm. us focused. That's true. So, basically, yeah, but, um, Kifidi's, uh testimony in this instance basically tied him and Orlando to directly to the murder of Tupac Shakur. So, well, now Kading's like, okay, well, that clears up Tupac's murder. What about Biggie's? So, the only remaining theory that was kind of floating around was that after 
after this theory debunked obviously a lot of the pool theory stuff with uh you know Suge Knight putting a hit out on Tupac because he was leaving Death Row or whatever. So and actually you the, and I had you and I had been talking about that earlier too mm-hmm. before the episode of that didn't really make sense because like why would you hire someone to kill the person while they're sitting next to you in the car and like you could easily get killed if you did that. Yeah, basically like if if they wanted to orchestrate Tupac's murder, why would why would Suge Knight literally put him in the line of put himself in the line of fire? Yeah. The only remaining theory regarding Biggie's murder was that it was a retaliation by Suge Knight for Tupac's death. The I guess evidence that they were able to gather to corroborate this theory basically all stems from a car. <laughs> um in nineteen ninety six, prior to Tupac's murder, Suge Knight commissioned a nineteen sixty one Chevy Impala to be customized as a gift for him. But Tupac died before he could receive it. So the the car was customized, I remember literally to the point where they ha- had his cover of his last album airbrushed on the trunk or something. Yeah, which yeah. Personally looked kind of gaudy, but who am I to judge? Don't judge that thug life, Kyle. <laughs> it would have been better if it just said thug life instead of just having a crappy airbrushed painting of Tupac. Like, <laughs> if I had a car, the last thing I want is like a big spray airbrush painting of me on it. I'm... <laughs> yeah, so basically he was unable to gift it to Tupac because Tupac died. So the car ended up changing hands over the years and eventually ended up at a pawn shop. Well... Uh, Kidding and his task for tracked down the car and found that it had been taken there by one of Suge Knight's longtime girlfriends. Um, I think they gave her an alias to protect her identity. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the documentary, they called her Teresa Swan. So Swan basically had a long history of fraud and perjury, including um, car loan fraud, which is, I think, what they ended up trying to pin on her to... Mm force her to cooperate, not unlike how they forced Keefe D to cooperate through catching yeah. him in drug dealing. Uh, over the course of a few meetings, uh, some of which took place at a Starbucks, yeah. she was very uh, hesitant to kind of give them any information out of fear of Suge Knight retelling it against her. Well, and because, you know, we said she was one of his longtime girlfriends. Um, she also was the mother of one of his children. Ooh. Um, so... She had even told the task force, like, I have kids. Like, I I only did stuff that he told me to do, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think she was really scared, not only for her own life, but, you know, obviously for her children, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think this was a lot of her hesitation. But, you know, from from what they described, it didn't sound like it took a whole lot to get her to cooperate. So, yeah, they're, they are pressuring her to talk. She's scared of Shug. She's scared for her kids. So the task force actually su- suspects that Biggie's killer was uh, Wardell Poochie Faust. Yeah, and uh, to to explain Poochie Faust really quickly, um, we have not mentioned him before because um, he hasn't really been pertinent to the story up until now. But uh, basically, you know, throughout throughout their investigations, the task force had realized this guy Poochie Faust seems to, from what they could tell, seems to have a really like secretive relationship with Suge Knight in a way that not every, anyone else really did. Word was that he was, uh, f- for all intents and purposes, basically a bodyguard slash hitman for Suge. 
And so once they started digging into the theory that um, Suge Knight had Biggie Smalls killed, you know, they started looking into this guy, Poochie Faust, who was, you know, his best shooter, basically. So so at that point, they they pretty much strongly suspected that he was the guy who shot Biggie. Yeah. Basically, to get the information out of Teresa Swan, they kind of told a fib. They presented her with uh, a fake confession that was supposedly written by Poochie. And after reading it, she agrees that his confession was accurate. Basically corroborating what they had faked that he said. Basically, they already suspected him. Even though he had died quite a while earlier, Mm -hmm. they were still trying to find the answers. And they said, okay, we're pretty sure it was him. But let's make it look like he confessed Mm -hmm. and see what she thinks. And, you know, she said, oh, yeah, that that all checks out. Mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, after Tupac was killed, Suge Knight was pissed. So while he was in prison, the the five years he was in prison shortly after Tupac's murder, uh, he forces Teresa Swan to pose as an attorney so that they can talk privately under the ruse of client-attorney privilege, which is pretty sketch and ballsy. Yeah. And so during those meetings, Suge instructed her to help him coordinate the murder of Biggie Smalls for $25,000. And so Swan then coordinates this with Poochie and is basically sort of the middle man or middle woman between uh, Suge and Poochie. Yeah. And on the night of Biggie's murder at the party uh, at the Peterson Auto Museum... Uh, Teresa Swan was there, but she left early and didn't actually see Poochie carry out the murder. A few weeks later, she paid him his share of that $25,000, which was roughly half, uh, thirteen thousand of $13,000. So she corrobor- corroborated that he was the intended killer. She was there at the party, even though she didn't see the murder, she paid him his half of the ransom essentially mm-hmm. so it, it, it's it's interesting that it you know at, at the point that they had gotten with with her it happened so much more quickly and simply mm-hmm. in comparison to the the tupac one but at, you know at this point now they're like and again this is so i by now i think it's roughly around 2010 or so and skating in the task force are like oh my gosh so like we pretty much know you know, all the things about the Tupac murder mm-hmm. and Orlando and Anderson and all that. And now we know that Poochie did the hit on Biggie. That was a weird sentence. <laughs> and so they're like, well, great. I mean, we pretty much figured it out. Like, that we have a few more things to cooperate just to make sure. Um, but they basically had it all tied up in a bow. Mm-hmm. Around the same time that they get this all figured out, on April 5th, 2010, the Wells family, now remember, we had this was Biggie's family. Remember, we had talked about them filing all those suits. Yeah. On April 5th, 2010, they dismissed their lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles. I guess, I guess what their understanding was, okay, they, the LAPD has this task force now. They had previously stopped investigating, but now they're doing it again. And we don't really want to get, we don't want this to get in, our, in their way. Mm-hmm. So they dropped the whole thing. That turned out to be a really ironic decision. Mm-hmm. Because suddenly, you know, all the motivation for the LAPD is gone to finish this case. Mm-hmm. Because the whole suit is gone. They're not going to get fined $500 million. This is a case that is 
20 some years old, mm-hmm. you know, cause, cause Kading is like, look, we, we figured it out. Like let's, you know, let's do this. But then they, their whole task force gets shut down. Yeah. So by roughly by May of 2010, um, the, they were disbanded. And I believe in the month following, I think in June of 2010 is when Kading resigned. I think that is a good lead in into kind of like our final summary of this whole thing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, starting with the question of why. So if we kind of basically know what happened, why has this never gone to trial? As you mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, a lot of people involved in this are dead. So really, when you think about it, if you are going to say, OK, we want to charge Orlando Anderson with the murder of Tupac Shakur. Mm-hmm. He died several years ago, as we said. I'm trying to remember what year that was. 1998. Uh, 98. So by this point, he had been dead for well over 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that was useless. Pucci, for the murder of uh, Biggie Smalls, he was also dead. Mm-hmm. In 2003. So <laughs> I-, I think along with all of the lost momentum based on the trial, the case being dismiss mm-hmm. there was also like the main people they would get for this they're already dead most other people involved like Shug Knight for example they're already in prison mm-hmm. like what are you going to do with this at this point yeah um, the only person know. that they really could have gone after but even Kading mentioned that this was partially the uh, what's the word the influence for the abandoning of the investigation was they had thought about going after Sean Puffy Combs for soliciting mm-hmm. um, Tupac's murder, but basically the LAPD was afraid of his star power um, and notoriety, so they basically decided not to pursue charges against him. Well, I th- well, you see this with you know any time a celebrity does something like it's fairly easy for them to get off. Mm-hmm. I, I, part of the point that Kading makes is that like you need to have a really really solid case with a lot of backed up evidence in order yeah. to go after someone this big, and they did not have that. Yeah, they had the testimony. And so even of- if even if they did, he would probably be able to get off because mm-hmm. he's a big celebrity. And obviously, they couldn't use anything that KVD had told them because he had gotten um, immunity. Immunity, thank you, because of their agreement. So nothing that he told them could be used as evidence. So it's pretty likely that this will never actually go to trial for those sort of reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, it, assuming all of these things are to be believed. And really, I think a lot of this stuff has, that was corrobor- corroborated and backed up by other things in the investigation. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of matches up. Um, that's not to be, that's not to say that there are any like questions still remaining. But for the most part, I think the big questions are answered. Um, so I wanted to do a really quick rundown of like, quote unquote, where are they now? Um, obviously, a lot of people in this story are dead. Um, Suge Knight, he's still around. F- basically, throughout his whole life, he's had this continuous string of legal, criminal, and financial issues. Um, his life is a mess. <laughs> in September of 2018... He pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter in a fatal 2015 hit and run. And he was sentenced to 28 years in prison as of last year. So he is currently in prison. Um, Death Row Records, of which he was the CEO, 
Um, they actually filed for bankruptcy back in 2006. The the decline being partially due to a combination of Tupac's death, Suge Knight being in prison a lot of the time, as well as, you know, it was no secret that Death Row Records had this whole tie-in with, you know, the gangs and the mm-hmm. rap rivalry. So really with all of this stuff together, they went out of business. Strangely, the whole thing with Puffy Combs and Bad Boy Records is like the complete opposite story. He's in, He's been incredibly successful in his music and business ventures. As of 2017, not too long ago from this recording, um, Forbes magazine estimated his net worth at $825 million. So a very, very far cry from Suge Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about it, technically, the East Coast won. By by the numbers, yeah, <laughs> and by the fact that Puffy Combs is out doing he's whatever, Suge Knight is the jail. last one standing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, likewise, Bad Boy Records, um, it, it saw a pretty steep decline in the in you know up to around two thousand or so, mm-hmm. similar to Death Row Records, but actually it kind of had a a, a comeback. Uh, I didn't really recognize any of the acts that are currently featured under them now because mm-hmm. I'm not totally up on like all of the modern rap things, but they're still, they're still kicking. So I guess as a kind of a final thought to wrap all of this up, you, you found this good quote from Greg Kading in an article, um, in an interview he did with the guardian. And I thought this was kind of a good note to end on. Do you want to read that? Uh, yeah, yeah. In doing some research and trying to find stuff, I found an interview that he did with the guardian, uh, after the release of the documentary, uh, murder rap. And one of the questions that the interviewer asked him was, uh, do you think Knight ordered Biggie's murder in retaliation for Tupac's murder? Was it as simple as that? And Kading responded, well, it was an evolution of events. It's really not simple in the sense that there's all this stuff going on on different levels. There's the Suge Knight-Sean Combs conflict. There's the Tupac-Biggie conflict. There's the Crips-Bloods conflict. But the idea that this group killed that group because of an ongoing set of circumstances, yeah, it's that simple. It's complicatedly simple. And that's how I felt during this entire episode. It's complicatedly (laughs) simple. Yeah. Because, you know, there's all these details, even like the whole huge amount of stuff that we didn't even go into. Really, when it comes down to it, the simplest answer of the whole thing was really what happened Mm -hmm. gangs going after each other killing each other uh you know in retaliation one for another an eye for an eye sort of thing Mm -hmm. um that is it appears to be exactly what happened i don't really know if there's much else we can say on this as this has been a a long road for us on funk radio but hopefully some of this made some damn sense to you listeners uh if not Sorry. If you're really confused and you sad that you wasted all this time, <laughs> tell us on Facebook at facebook.com slash get your funk. And we did not do the, uh, we did not run the, our staple um, ad for getyourfunk.com, but you can still go there to getyourfunk.com and find um, episodes about a lot of other things. And murders. Uh, not really. <laughs> No, I I I think you listeners and you and I, Kyle, will probably want to um, tread on some lighter 
topics for a while <laughs> after this. Yeah, good point. I, I guess I'll also end by saying if uh, if you have found this interesting and you want to learn more, there is absolutely no shortage of information and you know, there's a lot more than what we covered here, believe it or not. So mm-hmm. go uh, go read things. Go watch things. Educate yourself. Yeah. Uh, and until next time. Read a book. Read a book. Read a motherfucking book. That's it. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. We love you. Bye.